The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So tonight I'm speaking about the location of grace. And we're going to look at Noah tonight. And I was drawn to this text for many reasons that will become apparent in the course of teaching. But as I prepared for this evening, I realized that I've never really taught much from Noah, which is quite interesting. Noah doesn't feature much in our leadership discussions. When we often think of Noah, we think about his ignominious end. But we have to remember that Noah also had a gracious start. And so when we ask ourselves the questions of whether Noah has anything to teach us about leadership, I believe that he does. And we know, of course, that Noah faced an evil world. And perhaps this is our starting point. This is our clue. That this evil that Noah found himself in was inherited. When we read the story of Adam's family line, it tells us that in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him, male and female, created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day they were created. So we know that that is the beginning of the story of Adam's family. And we know that Adam is 130 years old when he begets his son Seth. But it's important to note in the Bible that when we read that scripture, it actually tells us that Adam begets a son in his own likeness after his image. And we see that this is a subtle shift, that Seth is not begotten in the image and the likeness of God the way his father Adam had been because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, because Seth's parents have now come to know both good and evil, that Seth is now begotten in the image and the likeness of his father. Seth is begotten in the image and likeness of Adam. In other words, he's begotten in this image and this likeness that knows both good and evil. And so as man begins to propagate and project or proliferate over the face of the earth, he's doing so in his own image, in the image of Adam. In other words, this is the image of man that is being reproduced generation after generation. This is the image that is marred, the image that is disobedient, the image that is cursed, the image that is sin-marked. It is this image and likeness of Adam 
that gets reproduced after a generation and generation. It's no longer the perfect image and likeness of God. And so this is an important note, and we'll come back to it in our teaching this evening. But we continue reading Adam's family line, and we have a listing of births and deaths. And nothing is quite notable until we come to Enoch. And of course, we read that Enoch was faithful and walked with God. And then, of course, Enoch begets Methuselah, and Methuselah begets Lamech, and then Lamech begets Noah. And Lamech names his son Noah, which means comfort. And Lamech says of his son, he shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And so we see that this family is carrying the memory of the curse along with them generationally. But even though they have this generational curse that's operating against them, you know, the, the toil and the labor, that, that, that they labor and toil, the ground has been cursed on account of their great-great-great-grandfather. So this family is carrying this memory of this curse along with them, but Lamech prophesies that this one will be the one to change the story of the family. And I believe that the Lord has given us this message tonight because he wants us to be encouraged that we too are called to change the curses at work in our family. Amen. So let's go to our text for this evening. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us once more. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for a strange word, but we know that you have given us the strange word because we find ourselves in strange times. Father, thank you for the School of Ministry and Leadership. We ask that everyone who will hear this message, that it will find them at their point of need. Father, you know why you have sent this word out into the earth at this time. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that as you send it out, your word never returns unto you void. And so, Father, we open ourselves unto you this evening. Holy Spirit, we ask you to reign in sovereignty over this gathering in your presence tonight, that your word would operate in full liberty, that nothing would restrain it, that it would have soft soil upon which to land and to be fertilized and to grow and to bear fruit in the lives, Lord, of them who are diligently seeking your face. I thank you, Father, for what you are doing in secret. And I thank you, Lord, that when it becomes apparent to us that you will give us the discernment to know it, that we may thank you for it, that we may praise you for it, that we may adore you and worship you for it, because all of the adoration belongs to you. 
In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So we have the situation on the face of the earth, the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, that the sin-marked image of man is multiplying on the earth. And because of that, wickedness is increasing in the world. And though there is still beauty in the world, because this is still the creation that God made, the Bible tells us that the thoughts of humanity in their hearts was continual wickedness. When you read the French translation, it says that it was continual and unique wickedness. In other words, this was a perpetual kind of wickedness, a wickedness that did not stop. Various ways of conceiving evil. And so it sounds very familiar to the worlds that we find ourselves living in now. But when we go back to the beginning of the Genesis account, we read of God's intent, of how God created everything, and everything that God creates, he calls it good. And when he creates man and everything is finished and God is about to rest, he calls it very good. But we see, of course, that once Adam and Eve have chewed on good and evil, they now have knowledge of both good and evil. And I want to just stop here and take a little side step because it's important for us to just focus on this for a moment. That for a lot of people, one of the stumbling blocks that they have when it comes to believing in a holy God, they ask, why does this God allow evil? And it's a tough question for us to satisfy, but it's actually the wrong question. That that question actually needs to be reframed if we are going to understand. And so tonight, for the purposes of our teaching, we're going to reframe that question and we're going to refer to this divergence of intent that arose in the Garden of Eden. So in the beginning, God's intent for man was good. Everything that God created was good. He created it for the man to have dominion. And once he created the man and everything was finished, his works were finished, God called everything very good. So that was God's intent for man. But because of man's disobedience, because of the fact that man now knows both good and evil, that was something that God did not intend for us to have at that point, that man was not to know both good and evil at that point. And this is why God warned Adam about it. And we have to slow down and think that evil is a created thing, just as man is a created thing. And when we turn to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, God himself declares that it is he who forms the light and creates darkness, that it is he who makes peace and creates evil. So we have man, who is a created thing, coexisting with this other created thing that's evil, which in many ways is bigger and badder than man. You know, just as God created creatures that are bigger and stronger than man. God created man, but God cre also created whales, and whales are much bigger than man. God created man, and God created bears, and bears are much bigger than man. God created man, and God created lions, and we know that lions are bigger than man. So God created evil. 
but it was never his intent at that point in the Garden of Eden that man should know evil. In Eden, man was only intended to know the good, to eat the good. But after eating from the fruit of knowing both good and evil, man now has this divergence of intent away from only good towards choosing now either good or evil. And so as we reframe this question of evil, it isn't why does a holy God allow evil? Because of God's holiness, God can contain evil. He can control evil. God can handle it. But for you and I, with our feeble human frames, we cannot. And so this is why God told them not to touch it. And we hear echoes of this when God is speaking to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And God warns Cain. And he said to Cain, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. Watch out. For sin is crouching at your door, and it wants you, but it's up to you to dominate over it. In other words, God was saying that in the same way that I have given you dominion over everything on the earth, including the things that are bigger than you, over the whales and over the bears and over the lions, it's also up to you to dominate over sin, which is bigger than you, which is badder than you. And you have to know that sin is hunting you like a lion. It's crouching at your door. And so the question about evil actually becomes, not why does a holy God allow evil, but the question becomes, are you letting sin hunt you? Or are you going to hunt and kill sin? Are you going to take dominion over sin? Are you going to dominate over sin before it jumps on you? And so from the leader's perspective, what does this look like? This looks like, are you leading in such a way to fight against sin? So at the personal level, being able to overcome your own personal sin or the interpersonal strife that arises from sin, jealousies, um, strivings, disunities. As a leader, are you going to fight against sin at the institutional level? So the way that sin patterns get officialized through organizational procedures and values. Or at the level of society, at the societal level, are you going to fight against sin? when it comes to issues of justice and corruption. So when we go back to the garden and we see how the devil was able to entice Eve, and he said to her that in the day that she eats of this fruit, she would become like God, knowing good and evil. That part was actually true because in knowing both good and evil, Eve and Adam, would be like God, because God knows both good and evil. But the difference is, is that Eve and Adam did not have God's holiness to be able to contain and restrain and overcome sin. And so we see that the repercussions of this is that, indeed, we now have a knowledge of good and evil, and it is, in fact, killing us. And so 
as men are multiplied on the face of the earth in chapter 6 and wickedness increases it's because we know both good and evil and we have diverged from God's intent of having only known good and we choose between good and evil lacking the full capacity to overcome evil and so this multiplied divergence of intent is the context we meet in our text this evening and it's very much the context that we continue to live in and so Noah then becomes very interesting to us as a leader because he's someone who had to lead in an evil contrary oppositional world and for those of us who are leading today, this is the same context. So here's the first clue about Noah's leadership and what lessons it has for us. The scripture tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when you find something, it's usually because you've been looking for it. Or you're looking for something else and you stumble across it. But the point is, is that finding always follows looking even if there's a delay between the time you start or even after you've stopped looking for a thing and the time you find it. So the first point about how to lead in an evil age is to ask yourself, where are you looking for grace? Where are you looking for grace? Many of us are looking for grace on TikTok. Many of us are looking for grace in Botox. Many of us are looking for grace in being powerful and being rich and being popular and being loved. But where are you looking for grace? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so it means that Noah was looking for grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in Jesus' opening sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, what he says to us is he says, don't look. For food or clothing don't look for those things because those are the things that people who do not know God that's what they do but as for you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that you are looking for you will find they will be added unto you and a few verses later Jesus continues with a different parable but the same message he says ask seek knock Ask and you shall receive it. Seek and you shall find it. Knock and the door shall be answered to you. And so every leader is looking for something. But the challenge for the godly leader is that you're looking for something in an environment that is not for you. The scripture tells us that Noah was a just man, meaning that he was a man of truth and integrity in other words, he was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man in all his generation. And Noah also walked with God, just as his great-grandfather Enoch had. And yet we find that Noah is living in a time where the whole world was corrupt before God. That is, in God's eyes, the world was corrupt. The world was filled with violence. And so automatically we must conclude that Noah was an anomaly amongst his contemporaries. He was totally different to them. And so the question for you is, is are you as a leader in Christ totally different from the people of your time? 
Or are you dancing their dances and saying their sayings and overall just going with their flow? We see this is not the case with, with Noah, that Noah was called righteous in all of his generation, but it's because he walked with God and he found grace in God's eyes, whereas his generation looked corrupt in God's same eyes. So the second thing that we should point out is that if Noah was strange to his contemporaries, they probably didn't like him too much. We know that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but Noah probably did not find grace in the eyes of his contemporaries. And so this is another clue to us about how to lead in an evil age. Are you willing to be disliked or unpopular because of the message that you are carrying? This is usually the cost of sanctification. And so how do you balance the tension of trying to lead people into the light when they're quite happy hanging out in the darkness? How do you as a leader keep your integrity and your righteousness in a corrupt and violent world? It's easy to follow Jesus when following Jesus is in fashion, but of course we know that Jesus was never in fashion. But it takes a resolution and a strong conviction to swim against the current of the world. That heaven is upstream and you have to actively swim and that the world is downstream and it's the easiest thing to float on down. I remember telling you all that last summer there's a river here in Geneva where in the summer times I it's a walking route that I have and in the summer times I'm always amazed because the river has a current of course and in the summertime the thing that you notice is that there are people who are on their inflatable rafts or rings or whatever and they just love to sit on their floating devices and just let the current gently sway them downstream and it's 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 quite a long ways it's a few kilometers but you know on a beautiful summer's day when the sun is shining and the sky is blue and the birds are chirping and the weather is fine i mean it doesn't there's nothing else that you want to do this feels like exactly where you want to be to just be sitting in your inflatable gently going downstream and whenever I watch them it always ministers to me because I see that in comparison you will find relatively fewer people who actually choose to kayak upstream so they use it as a form of exercise to actually go against the current but the kayakers are, are much fewer in number compared to those who sit on the inflatables and float down the river and this is a statement on the way of the world that when you, are particular, when you are carrying a particular message, you have to, as a leader, know that your swim is upstream. It's against the currents, that heaven is upstream. It's far, far easier to enjoy the temperature and the environment, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life as you float down the world's stream. 
And so as a godly leader, how do you balance this? How do you balance trying to lead people going in the opposite direction? So we saw that Noah, like his great-grandfather, walked faithfully with God. And the question that I would ask you this evening is, is who are you walking with? Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So who is your counselor? Where do you get your advice from? Where do you source your information? What's advising you? Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is the one who does not stand in the way of sinners. And the word way that gets used there is the Hebrew word derek, which means a road or a pathway. So it's not just standing in the way as in standing in a, and, and not moving, you know, not, it's not standing in the doorway. It's actually your life journey, your direction of travel, your pattern of life. So as a leader, are you leading in the lazy way? Are you leading in the cheating way? Or are you leading in the righteous way? So the direction or the pattern of your life's journey. Someone says that blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And so seat there refers not only to a chair, but it refers to your habitation, the place where you dwell, your spot where you hang out, the place where you can normally be found. And so in order to be blessed, as we conclude in this month of blessings, the blessed man is the one who is found not in the habitation or the dwelling place with the proud, with the boastful, with the derisive, with those who have contempt for everything and everyone, for those who look down on others. On the contrary, someone tells us that the man who will be blessed Instead of these locations, so instead of walking with the counsel of the ungodly or standing in the way of the sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful, that the blessed man, the blessed leader, will be the one whose location is delighting in the law of the Lord as he meditates on this law day and night. And so this again speaks to us about the location of grace that finding grace in the eyes of the Lord is found by taking joy in God's word. And the psalm continues that even when the heat of day comes, because this man is so blessed that when heat comes, he won't feel it. This man will be like one who is planted by the rivers where his roots spread out and that even when drought comes, he will still be furnishing leaves that are green and still be bearing fruit and will still be prospering. So the location of grace is in God's eyes. And someone just amplifies that for us by saying that it's the meditation and, and taking delight in God's word that will bless this leader. And then the next point I want to make as we wrap up is I want to point out the description that the Bible gives us of how Noah builds his ark, because there's something really interesting here. 
So the Bible describes God's very specific instructions to Noah. And it goes through, it goes through, you know, God tells him to build this ark and he specifies that he should use cypress wood and he specifies the dimensions in terms of the cubits and how the roof should be and how the windows should be and that Noah should seal it with pitch on the inside and on the outside. So we have all of that very specific picture that God gives Noah. And then it concludes and it says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And what's amazing about this is that this is the precise language that gets used of Moses in Exodus several generations later, when God also commands Moses to build a different kind of ark. And in Exodus, we have a similar description of God giving Moses the dimensions of the ark that Moses should use acacia wood for his ark and that he should build it with these particular specifications and these dimensions. And after that description of what the ark is meant to look like, the Bible tells us that, and so did Moses according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time for us to look at, well, what's an ark? We know that an ark is a vessel, it's a container. And so Noah builds an ark to carry the animals and to carry his family during the flood. And Moses builds an ark to carry the stone tablets that contain the Ten Commandments that God gives Israel. But these arks aren't simply vessels. These are vessels that are containing covenants, that are carrying covenants. And we know, of course, that a covenant is a binding promise that God enters into with humanity. Of course, that have terms and conditions that apply. So there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. But uh, uh, an ark is essentially a vessel that carries these covenants. And in the Noahic covenant and the covenant that God sets with Noah. When we read in Genesis 8 and 9, God vows never again to destroy the earth by flood. And we see God re-blessing Noah and his family to fill the earth and to subdue it. And we also notice that there are a few changes that whereas when God spoke to Adam and Eve and he gave them freedom to eat all of the herbs uh, and have the herbs of the earth as meat, that after the flood, God actually gives Noah and his family the animals as well as meat. So we see a few changes. And what's interesting to note is, is that we don't actually have a record of God entering into a covenant with Adam. So the Noahic covenant is the first covenant. It's the covenant that God enters into with humanity, where he vows never again to destroy all of life and the creatures on the earth by flood. And he re-blesses Noah and his family to multiply and replenish the earth. The Mosaic covenant, the second, the third covenant that God enters into with humanity is the confirmation that God gives as the promise that he had given to his friend Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant becomes the second covenant where God promises to 
bless Abraham's descendants. But then after the 430 years pass, and, and after the years and years pass after, after that, when God enters into this third covenant with humanity, they're standing, the nation of Israel, these descendants of Abraham who have now flourished into uh, not quite the innumerable sand on the seashore, but a significant, a significant population and a significant number. They reconfirm this covenant. They stand on the Mount Sinai while the man of God Moses speaks to them and the people say, we will obey. So they, they confirm the covenant. They enter into this covenant. And so that's the point at which they receive the law of God, the commandments, and the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments go into the ark. In other words, the Noahic covenant, the first covenant, is a covenant between God and all living creatures on earth. The Mosaic covenant, the third covenant, because God has already made a prior covenant with Abraham. So this third covenant is a covenant between God and the people he calls his. So the descendants of, of Abraham, who he calls to be this special people unto himself. It's a subset of all the living people. So we see that the covenants are getting narrower and more specific. And so, why am I speaking about this in leadership? What do these arcs and these covenants have to do with leadership? If we take the perspective of being a leader in Christ, because today you are a leader in Christ, you find yourself traveling in God's fifth and final ark. So the fourth covenant was the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant, speaking about his seed, his seed who would come and sit on David's throne. But the fifth covenant, the final covenant that God gives to humanity is the messianic covenant. So this new covenant that was poured out in the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so the vessel that was the earthly container that we call Jesus was the ark carrying this new covenant. And so this covenant, this fifth covenant, exists not, not between God and all creatures, not between God and the ethnic or biological descendants of Abraham, but between God and those who would choose Jesus. The language that gets used around this peculiar nation, this nation of kings and priests, we see that it gets repeated over and over in scripture. That we see it in Exodus, and then Peter writes about it, and then it shows up in the book of Revelations. So in Exodus chapter 19, the Bible says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the New Testament, when Peter is writing to the church, he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then when the book of Revelations opens, John writes, Unto him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. And so this is a call to leadership. We know that kings and priests lead. They give their families and their institutions and their societies rulings of justice and order. And as a leader, you're called to do so also in the name of Jesus. Just as he called Noah and just as he called Moses. His call to you is no lesser. We live in an evil age. And as a leader in Christ, you'll find yourself having to speak and act against the current, just as Noah did. But let the peak of your ambition be to want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Meaning that this is the location of where you are looking for grace not in worldly places. And so the question for us becomes then, can we become the type of leader, can we become the type of leaders who fear God more and fear men less? Amen.